Good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody. Good to see a good crowd this morning. Um, I got up here and I have my notes on my laptop and it shut itself down. So <laughs> I'm rebooting here. So sorry, sorry about the delay. Uh, this morning we're going to uh, begin a study of John chapter 13. Uh, just a comment or two, maybe before we really look at uh, the text of that chapter. Uh, remember that uh, last week Paul concluded uh, the study of chapter 12. And uh, we recall from that study that uh, Jesus had traveled to Bethany and that he was with uh, Lazarus and Martha and Mary and it was six days before the Passover. And then as we read in that, in that chapter, the next day, he uh, traveled to Jerusalem and, and it was the entry into Jerusalem and the beginning of his last week and uh, uh, Paul covered that very thoroughly. So it was the time for the feast of the Passover. That's, that's what was approaching and that's why he, uh, one reason that he went to Jerusalem. And, and just briefly we remember that the the Passover meal is not just an informal sort of meal, but rather uh, there, there's a process that was followed there. Uh, the meal had elements to it, and those elements represented different things to the Jews uh, relative to their Egyptian bondage and their release from that, from that bondage. And this, of course, was the meal that uh, Jesus shared with His apostles uh, that we'll be touching on and talking about a little bit, a little bit this morning. So time's drawing near. Uh, the Lord has entered into Jerusalem. Uh, his his death, his burial, and his subsequent resurrection is just days away, uh, happening very quickly. And I might just a sidebar comment to that. It's always been kind of interesting to me that uh, to to notice how rapidly things took place in that in that final week. Things were moving quickly. Uh, we're going to talk about some events in the upper room, uh, but, but soon they leave that upper room. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus prays fervently there. Uh, he's betrayed. He's arrested. They very quickly try Him. And then the next day, He's, he's uh, crucified. And so, beginning with uh, John chapter 13, we, we look at that chapter and we see... Uh, details, details about the dialogue and the interaction that took place there uh, in the upper room. And I believe it's a value uh, for us to kind of back off for a moment and look at the, the other Gospels, look at all four Gospels kind of uh, parallel to one another relative to this little period of time here when they, you know, uh, that, that we're kind of focused on this morning. So I'll put this little chart together. I hope you can read it okay. Uh, there was a good bit to put on there, and it, you know, it was kind of hard to squeeze it down uh, and still be readable. But uh, each gospel account, uh, of, uh, or each, each writer of the gospel gave his account of Jesus and his apostles partaking of the Passover feast. Uh, and, and I just want to look at some certain things here in the sequence of things. Uh, if we look at Mark, we see that he recorded in chapter 14 that 
that prior to them going to the upper room for the, the Passover, that Judas agreed with the chief priest uh, to betray Jesus and to do it at, at what would be an, a, an, a, a convenient time, a convenient opportunity for them. And then we move to John chapter 13 and verse 2. And John records in chapter 13 that at the time of them entering into the upper room, that the devil had already uh, put into Judas's heart to portray Jesus. And that's significant in the things that we're going to talk about a little bit here in, in, this, in this 13th uh, chapter. In Matthew, chapters, Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 22 respectively, Jesus instructs Peter and John as to what to do to prepare for the meal, to prepare for the feast. He tells them to go into the city and there will be a man and uh, that man will have a, have a room available and, and that would be what, what they would use. And so they do that. In subsequent verses, in those, each of those three chapters, the Lord institutes the Lord's Supper. But as we look at, uh, at, at the Gospel of John, that's not included in John's Gospel. Uh, but on the other hand, we're going to look at John's Gospel here, and, and as I've already stated, John uh, uh, gives us a great many details that, you know, that the others didn't provide. Luke does record uh, in chapter 22, verses 24 through 30, uh, that uh, the apostles argued amongst themselves. Uh, there was some sort of bickering going among, you know, uh, between them as to which one was going to be the greatest of the kingdom. And I've got a few comments to add to that later on. Probably not today, but you know, next week we'll we'll come back and, and, and revisit that. Well, why were they doing that? You know, what was really the baseline reason for them behaving like that? The reason was they're selfish. And, and they have pride. And it's their pride that is driving that. And that's, that's something we're going to, uh, to come back and talk about a little bit. And then we come to John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now, I, I can't say this for sure. I don't, you know, this is somewhat speculative or, or my opinion, but I wonder if, if Jesus was sitting there and he's listening to those apostles while they're arguing about this, while they're bickering about it. I'm sure he's listening to them. And, and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And then what happens? That very well could have prompted Jesus to get up and, and do what he did here in these early verses of, of chapter 13. Scripture doesn't tell us that, but it seems a, a reasonable thing that that might be the case. So let's read uh, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, if you'll read that with me. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put into the heart of Jesus, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, 
that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he, had, with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You should never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you say, Well, for I am so. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Proverbs 23, verse 7 is a I think a familiar passage for all of us. Particularly the first part of it. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Now over time, uh, man has kind of taken the, the context of that verse and kind of reworded it into his, into his own way. Uh, for instance, Albert Einstein wrote this. He said, If you feed your mind as often as you feed your stomach, then you'll never have to worry about feeding your stomach or a roof over your head or clothes on your back. A fellow named Jack Vanette wrote this, You are the books you read, the movies you watch, the music you listen to, the people you spend time with, the conversations you engage in. Choose wisely what you feed your mind. Lisa Nichols wrote this, Your mind will always believe everything you tell it. Feed it faith. Feed it truth. Feed it with love. And then there's a fellow named Zig Ziglar. He's a, a motivational speaker. He wrote, wrote this, Before you change your thinking, you have to change what goes into your mind. If we study the Bible daily, we're feeding our minds. We're feeding our minds with God's Word. And from that, we ought to develop a mindset regarding what we read and what we 
we learn from there. Studying our Bibles daily is an essential part of being a Christian. And that mindset I'm speaking of that we develop from our study ought to and will become a way of life for us. We take it, we read it, we study it, we contemplate on it, we meditate on it, we take what we have from that, the context of that, we apply it to ourselves, uh, uh, and we repeat the process. And we continue to do that, and we write it in our hearts. We are what is in our hearts. So over time, your study and your your walking in the light, that ought to change your heart to one that has all the qualities that we read about in Scripture. Uh, patience, meekness, kindness, consideration, love, respect, and, and, and on and on. And, and this kind of study I'm speaking of leads us to this mindset that that really ought to be a part of us as much as any other characteristic or any physical part of our bodies, any physical part of our attributes. It ought to be just a part of us. And, and it includes a lot of things, like, like I mentioned there a moment ago, several things, but, but we're going to focus on one part of it here in John 13. And that's humility. A few weeks ago we had uh, Brother Don Blackwell to speak. Uh, spoke to our Bible class, taught our Bible class, had two sermons, and hope you were here to hear that. Uh, leading up to that, David had provided a number of lessons and sermons about um, humbleness and humility that were excellent. And I just thought that Brother Blackwell's topics and the content and the sequence, that was real important too. The sequence of those three lessons together were just fantastic, just excellent. Can't say enough about that. But one thing that you had to have been impressed with, more than you know, maybe more than anything, was his humility. Humility I saw in him and heard from him. Now Brother Blackwell suffered, you know, a, a terrible accident that, that, that changed his life, and he shared a lot of things with us, and, and you could see his struggles. You know, he shared his struggles with us. But even so, I, I just saw a humility in him that, that honestly, I was envious of. I wish I, I wished I had that. I can't say that I do. Um, as we look at John chapter 13, I... I feel very unqualified to be standing up here this morning really and, and talking about this, but, but we'll do the best we can. I've heard a lot of lessons, I'm sure you have, about humility and, and humbleness. And um, this is, I think, at least the third time that I've had the opportunity to teach John. So I've, I've been through this before. I've, I've you know, developed lessons, this lesson. Um, and I'll do my best as I'll go along here. I, I, I want to give credit where it's due to people as I'll mention certain things because everything I'm going to share with you is not necessarily original to me. Wished it was. Wished I could have that wisdom, but I don't. Um, but as I said there a few moments ago, there's some details in John's account that, 
that we don't get in the other accounts. So beginning here in chapter 13, he, he gives us a lot of detail all the way through the end of chapter 17. Details that those other three Gospels just don't have, don't include uh, through inspiration. It was a custom of those days uh, to set a, a jar or a, some type of container by the door with water in it so that as an individual would come in through the door, there was the opportunity there to wash their feet. Um, it was In that culture, it was somewhat expected of the host to do that, to provide that. Apparently, it was a detail uh, that had been overlooked in the apostles' haste to prepare for the Passover meal here. Usually this was something, this was a task that was given to a servant, usually a male servant, and it was the least of the least. The least of the servants. If there weren't any servants in the home, it likely fell to the least of the children, uh, of the male children. And so, the apostles enter the upper room. And again, some of this is con conjecture, you know. We can kind of think about this and this possibly could have happened. We don't really know how they may have reacted, but they, they enter the room and there's no one there to wash the feet. Apparently there was a container of water because Jesus used that. We also reference you back to the point in Luke that they were arguing. They were bickering. So washing each other's feet was the last thing that would have been on their minds at the time. So um, let's just keep that picture in our mind as we'll move forward and we'll kind of discuss a few things. I think that John chapter 13 is, is just so completely clear in its evidence that the Lord was fully aware of His nature and, and fully, fully aware of His divine mission. I think with, with great clarity as we look at His words here and we study His words and we think about it, we, he, he shows us His consciousness. And He shows us that in His consciousness that He knew that He was in fact the Son of God and therefore He, he possessed power and, he, and, and the glory. That, that properly ought to belong to, to one who came from God and, and one who was about to return to God. And, and so far as this lowly act that we're going to talk about here, no disciple could ever claim to be above the performance of the most menial of services in the name of Christ. None of us can do that. We're servants. As disciples, we're servants. And, and sometimes servants are required to, to do things that just, you know, are not dignified, for lack of a better word. But, but the irony is this. In that indignity, we are honored. We, we, we show our love and our devotion to the Lord and, and to what's good, and consequently, we are truly dignified in doing that. Now, I mentioned the, the argument. The, the other writer uh, speaks of the argument that was going on between 
the disciples about who was the greatest, who was going to be the greatest among them in, in the kingdom, who, who would occupy the greatest position in, in their perception of what the kingdom was going to be. It's obvious they didn't quite understand what the kingdom was at this point. And, and I don't know this to be the case, but as I said earlier, I, I would just envision the Lord sitting there and He's listening and He's observing and He's, he's hearing that. And He knows what's in their heart. And He knows their hearts are not where they need to be. And, and given the cultural aspects of washing someone's feet, Just imagine the shock that they had. When Jesus gets up and he, he begins the task. For instance, John describes how Jesus gets up and he girds, you know, removes his garments, girds himself, uh, you know, his, he girded himself, and, and, and we can see that in our mind's eye. Well, think about what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, in verse 5 about girding oneself with humility. You think that made an impression on Peter? I think it did. i got to believe Peter was thinking about that when he wrote those words. Sandals were the simple footwear. You can go out on you know, the internet today and you can find all sorts of pictures you know, where archaeologists have uncovered old, old sandals, and they're basically like that. Um, they're simple footwear uh, for that time, uh, and they consisted basically of, of a piece of leather to which were attached some sort of thong that they would uh, wrap around their, their feet and their, their, their ankles to hold them on. And of course, uh, they, they provided protection to the bottom of the foot, but they didn't cover the top of the foot, and so the foot would become very, or your feet would become very dirty. Obviously, you know, there weren't uh, paved streets and sidewalks. You were often walking on dirt, and your feet became dirty. So it was the custom, as we said earlier, to keep a basin of water by the door so uh, the visitor's feet could be uh, washed when, when they come in. This was, like I said, commonly done by a servant, usually the least of the servants. Right. So, there was technically no host present in the upper room. And so, the disciples arranged themselves around the table. And again, for, you know, they, they weren't willing to wash each other's feet or even their own feet. They weren't willing to engage in such a uh, you know, a lowly task. And so Jesus begins that humble task. And I just want to, you know, emphasize the contrast there. Um, they're sitting around, they're, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, and then Jesus begins the task of washing their feet. Mm-hmm. Do you think there was like backbiting and, and you know, kind of a sense of competition among them? Like perhaps you would see in any type of shops 
Yeah, I think so too. Uh, what Brother Paul said was, uh, did, did we think that perhaps there was some, some uh, competition or backbiting type things going on amongst the apostles that they uh, were kind of competing with one another? And, and in all likelihood, yes, you given the personalities of, you know, that we read about and can understand, I would, they're men. I would say yes, in all likelihood. But they're sitting there and, and Jesus begins this task. And, and the point I was going to make about that is talking about getting brought back down to earth real quick. I think he got their attention. I think he did. And so... The Lord proceeds to wash the feet of the disciples. And He had washed a number of them before reaching Peter. And we've already read this, this passage. I won't reread it, verses 6-10, through 10, but we've got it up here for reference. Here they are. They're sitting there. They're back down to earth, maybe. Uh, they seem to have suffered the embarrassment of of this, and they've sat there kind of in pain silence, and maybe even too baffled or astonished to speak, and certainly not sure of what to do other than just, just to sit there, with the exception of Peter. And, and I think it's interesting to consider the apostles, like we've already mentioned there a moment ago, and who they were. Uh, each, each one was his own person, they came from different backgrounds, and and they had characteristics, and I, I, it's safe to say Peter was a bold person. Uh, and it would appear that he was rarely at a loss for words. Y'all know anybody like that? I know a couple of people like that. I've got one in my family that I think every thought that comes through that person's brain comes right out their mouth. <laughs> no, no stopping, no processing, you know. Uh, but we know people like that. That's a, that's a characteristic some folks have. Some of us are introverted. Some of us are extroverted. Peter was extroverted. And he seemed to have an occasion very often for, as we've said before, sticking his foot in his mouth because he didn't think about it before he said it. Or he didn't think enough about it before he said it. And so here Peter is, he's in this intolerable situation, and he says to Jesus, Lord, does thou wash my feet? With, with the emphasis, I think, on the thou and the my. And, and I would even speculate, we can't read it in Scripture, I could see Peter pulling back, you know, with body English. Saying, no, you know, would you do this? The Lord of glory washing his feet? And so he speaks out. The others are sitting in silence. Jesus, you know, allowing Jesus to proceed. And then here's, here's impulsive Peter on the other hand, and, and he just can't stand it. He can't endure it. And, and he just couldn't handle it. And so he speaks out against Jesus. And in verse 7, Jesus mildly rebukes Peter. And again, Jesus knew Peter. He knew Peter's temperament. He knew his heart. And, and it was necessary for Peter to be told that, that even though he has these strong feelings, um, that 
that those feelings really resulted from ignorance. And later he was going to understand clearly the necessity of what the Lord is doing here. And, and certainly as Peter advanced in knowledge and, and, and advanced in his, in his spiritual maturity, uh, he, he'd come to know that. He'd come to know the nature of Christ's kingdom and, and the spirit that ought to characterize every faithful follower of the Lord. The washing of the feet, that was an object lesson. And, and the Lord hoped that, that they would accept that and therefore come to recognize that their pride, their self-seeking and worldly ambition in this argument that they were having would have to give way to humility and to contriteness of heart. It would have to. And so... Peter wasn't done. In verse 8, he responds again. And, and, and this time, it's a little more self-righteous, a little more arrogant. He's actually questioning the judgment of Jesus. And Jesus very swiftly and, and sharply rebukes him, saying, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And I can, I can envision there's direct eye contact there. And Peter got the point. The first requirement of discipleship is humble and unquestioning submission to the Lord's will. And it's imperative that Peter learns this humility. And and John makes it clear that that was the Lord's purpose to teach here, to teach that here. The purpose was to show not only those apostles that, but you and me and future generations of Christians. That that humility of spirit and the necessity of performing even the most menial acts of service is necessary. Now don't get me wrong, I, you know, Peter is truly an admirable person. He had his faults, but did not his heart overflow with love for the Lord? Is that not also evident? He, he just seemed to never do enough, and even though often his weaknesses would kind of possess him, his determination to do right always triumphed. It always came through. And, and he was willing to learn. He was willing to grasp the lesson that was being taught. And so Peter silenced, and, and the Lord finishes the washing of the disciples' feet. He returns to his place at the table, and he explains the lesson that he just taught them, that, that being that they must be willing to perform the most menial services. Genuine greatness is analogous to useful service. Luke 22, verses 26 through 27 reads this, But not so among you, on the contrary. He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one serves. If the Lord 
God's Son stepped down to perform the lowly task of, of washing the disciples' feet, then, then His disciples ought to be willing to wash one another's feet. And, and, and that's the symbol of the performance of any humble act of service that, that, that you want to use as an example. Instead of seeking places of position and preeminence and prestige, what they needed to do was follow the Lord's example in serving others as is required, regardless of how lowly or insignificant that act of service would be or is. The servant is no greater than his Lord. And if that be the case, then he ought to be willing to do what his Lord does and never, never be ashamed of it. So, um, humility is defined as the quality or the state of being humble. The quality or the state of being humble. Humble is defined as not proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive, unpretentious, and modest. Modest means unassuming or moderate in the estimation of one's abilities or achievements. Just a sidebar here, you know, we we repeat this a lot, and I'm going to repeat it again because it's a good opportunity. We look at our nation today um, and all the problems um, of our culture and our society, you don't have to look very far to realize humility is lacking in so many respects. We, we live in a society that is, is more often than not based on combativeness um, and arrogance and in assertiveness, and that's just rampant in our in our country and in our culture. Uh, there's this part of our people, our society, that that just take the position that I know everything, you don't know anything, and oh by the way, I'm going to tell you everything, and I'm going to do it in your face, and it's lifted up as a badge of honor almost. Larry. Basis. That's a good point, Larry. And, and it's in, it's on display, isn't it? We go outside the church, just as I'm saying, we see that. You know, uh, so many people leave from a point of self-serving 
or a self-serving mindset as opposed to that of servitude. That's a good point, very good point. But our culture is not a humble culture, is it? We, we can't say that. There's very little humility in it. And I'll, I'll come back on track here. I, I just want to say I really am worried about our country, and you ought to be too, and you ought to be fervently praying. I worry about these generations that's coming out. A lot of us in here, we won't be around that much longer, will we? And there'll be other generations. Those are the ones that I, that I worry about. I think we ought to be very thankful for what we have and not take our lives and our health and our peace and our prosperity for granted, but it just seems not to be the case often today. Um, so, so where does humi- humility originate from? Where does it come from? Well, I suggest to you it is a learned trait. I think that's a true, valid statement. We define humility as the quality of being humble. Being humble is not some talent that you're blessed with at birth. However, it's something everyone is capable of doing. It's something that everyone's capable of practicing. It's something that can be a way of life. Being humble is a state of mind. It's an attitude. And, And you can control your attitude. And and if we maintain a certain attitude long enough, it becomes a way of life. And it manifests itself in a lot of ways. But one way in particular that it affects us is how we treat other people, and particularly how we treat other Christians. We use the word virtue often. Virtue is defined as a conformity to a standard of right or morality, but but it's also defined as a a commendable quality or trait. And that's that latter definition is the one that I want to use here in the context of what, what we're talking about. I think, and kind of touching a little bit on something Larry said there a moment ago, that, that humility is the root of all virtue the root of all virtues. Now, I'm not saying it's the most important virtue. I'm not wise enough to to even comment on that. But without it, there's really no foundation. There's no basis for any of the other great character traits to live and develop. True humility... is not sitting around and thinking about how humble you are. It's washing feet. Humility means to us exactly what the Lord taught those apostles here in John 13. It means putting our pride aside and serving our fellow Christians and our fellow men, and you can't do that if you're proud. A couple of 
one, one other verse right quick and we'll end right here. Galatians 6, 9-10. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I'll leave you with this thought. God's people are as good as they give. If your standard involves no mercy, you receive no mercy. Got a lot more to add to this. So we're going to stop right there this morning. We'll pick back up here and maybe recap a little bit next week and and continue on with our thoughts. Thanks for your comments this morning. We'll, We'll stop right there.